This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, February 20th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. The Congressional Budget Office says if current trends continue, federal debt will hit 200 percent of GDP in 30 years. The speed with which total outstanding debt has accelerated in recent years is truly alarming. But if Congress and the White House woke up tomorrow as debt hawks, what would that look like? Cato's Ramina Baccia explains. The massive big spending plans that various factions have within the federal government. Uh, We've also talked about the degree to which the United States uh, can afford to make all of these uh, big spending plans. We have huge amounts of unfunded liabilities to say nothing of the tens of trillions of dollars that the U.S. is indebted to uh, various people and institutions around the world. So if Congress were serious, uh, there, there are, I think, to your mind, a few proposals that would put a, the brakes on the amount of debt that the U.S. is accumulating and the amount of spending that the U.S. does. So what are some of the, the, the in the pantheon of proposals, what are some of the best that you think uh, could be adopted in the U.S. to begin that process? Yeah. At the most basic level, to cut spending immediately um, should be fairly easy to do because all it takes is returning discretionary spending back to pre-pandemic levels. I'm talking fiscal year 2019. Uh, and then even adjusting for inflation, we are significantly above those levels now. And this is actually one of the priorities that the House Republicans are currently pushing at the debt limit to say, let's return uh, non-defense, so domestic spending programs, which are various subsidy programs and uh, the government bureaucracy is financed through that. Let's return that to pre-pandemic fiscal year 2019 levels. And that would uh, that would be about $130 billion spending cut um, just uh, next year. Uh, however, discretionary spending uh, cuts alone um, will not uh, fix the broader fiscal issue because it's primarily driven by Social Security and Medicare. And even there, coming back to something the President Biden said in the State of the Union about we will not make cuts to Social Security and we will not cut Medicare. Interestingly, you don't actually have to cut benefits simply freezing benefits at their current level of generosity and only adjusting them for inflation would um, almost eliminate the entire shortfall in Social Security and Medicare. Because the issue we have is not just that, um, you know, these programs are growing because more individuals are entering them as uh, we're going through a demographic change in this country where the population 65 and older is growing at um, uh, two and a half times faster than the population uh, of working Americans. But leaving that aside, the problem is that we are making these benefit programs more generous over time, such that even just freezing benefits at their current levels, making no cuts and protecting those benefit levels against inflation would um, would eliminate almost the entire shortfall. Now, uh, let let before we get on to some other uh, proposals to make cuts in the short term and over the long term. Um, so, so I love that idea of a spending freeze. 
It is immediately intuitive. Everyone knows what it means. And if you've already dealt with uh, inflation, uh, then people intuitively understand what a spending freeze is. But in in the short run, uh, let's or I should say in the middle run, uh, spending cuts right now, broadly speaking, it across all programs beyond discretionary spending. We're st- we're still sort of in the same boat ten years from now, aren't we? Just given the the autopilot that a lot of those programs are on. Yes, you. Um, so discretionary spending, Congress reviews every year. Um, unfortunately, they tend to increase that spending rather than reduce it when they review it annually. But the vast majority of federal government programs, seventy uh, percent in fact, are um, growing on autopilot. These are so-called mandatory programs. That doesn't mean that we have to spend money on them. It's just um, uh, it just means that the government has already authorized spending on these programs uh, without annual review. Just another way to, uh, the government calls them is direct spending, but I think autopilot spending is is probably the most accurate way to describe these. And the biggest ones are Medicare, Social Security, uh, but also uh, much of Medicaid and a number of other smaller programs. And those are um, driving most of the growth in automatic spending increases over the next 10 years and also beyond. Uh, But if we actually instituted a overall spending freeze on the federal budget, say this year, the total federal budget uh, is projected to be about 6 trillion in spending this year with uh, less than $5 trillion in revenues coming in. So you'll have a deficit of about $1.4 uh, trillion again. And if we just froze spending at the current level of roughly $6 trillion, um, we would balance the budget before the end of the decade because revenues are growing. Um, and if we just froze spending, we would actually balance the budget. The problem is that spending is projected to increase by 50% over the next 10 years growing from roughly 6 trillion a year to uh, roughly 9 trillion by 2032. So it all comes down to slowing or stopping the growth in spending, whether we're talking the entitlement programs or other government spending. Um, and, and that's where, where, where the tricky part lies. You're being accused of cutting spending when you're merely slowing the growth in spending. And I think a good target for Congress uh, this year would be to at least try to stabilize the growth in the debt. Because over this period that I just mentioned, debt is also projected to grow by 40% from roughly 100% of the economy to 140%. And that's just reckless, especially when you're not projecting any recession or crises. So those numbers could look worse if those, uh, if, you know, economic conditions change. So if we agreed to freeze the debt at its current level, um, as a share of the economy, which still would be too high, but I think would be a good start rather than allowing debt to continue to grow, that would require about seven trillion in spending reductions over the next 10 years. But we're projecting to spend over 70 trillion over this entire period. So we're talking about a 10% haircut. Um, that should be doable. Now we just need to convince uh, Congress to actually act on this. 
And you and I uh, spoke recently about the fiscal illusion, the James Buchanan concept that the United States appears to suffer from where other countries do not. That is, we get the benefits, uh, we do not pay the costs up front. And that gives us sort of a warped picture of how much government costs. That's right. Because one of the ways in which constituents can be part of making trade-off considerations regarding, you know, how much government do we really want? How much room do we want to leave for the private sector to expand, grow, innovate? Because when you grow government, you are using real resources in the economy that could be used towards productive investments. And, you know, there's some things that government does that are beneficial, um, the rule of law and um, protecting the integrity of our nation, national defense, if you will. Um, but so much is misallocating resources from the private sector uh, based on uh, political considerations instead. And that is that is fundamentally costly. And to, for voters to be able to make appropriate trade-off considerations, you know, how, how, is, is it worth the government running this program? Would I rather have the private sector do this? Also matters, how much am I paying for this? And when it looks like that you're getting a lot of government for free because you're pushing the cost onto future generations, you're not paying for it today uh, in higher taxes, then um, what we find is that constituents support more government than they otherwise would. And we did a recent poll on this. Emily Eakins at Cato polled uh, the American people on their support for student loan forgiveness. And when just asking about whether they support student loan forgiveness, uh, over 60% of those polled said, yes, they do. When the question was reframed to say, if your taxes had to go up to pay for it, that support dropped to um, to about 30%. So it dropped about in half. So we know that people care about this. And when you don't pay for the government that you get, you ask for more government. And so that's where I think our fiscal policy leads to a larger, more intrusive government than we would have if we actually paid for it in the current period and not just add it to the debt. So how do, correct me if I'm wrong, Sweden, Germany, and Switzerland, how do they do everything? How do they decide to pay for their relatively generous spending on social programs? Yeah, so first of all, there is actually a shared understanding among their political parties that high debt is bad, it's costly, it's risky. And so there's there was a bipartisan agreement to adopt a so-called debt break, which uh, limits the growth in the debt by limiting spending. Because spending, government spending is what drives growth in the debt. Uh, what we have found when you increase uh, tax revenues, they usually just chase higher spending. If you don't address spending growth, you are always going to fall behind. And so in those countries with those debt breaks in place that are actually their constitutional amendments, and so they're locked in, they, they're not subject to the whims of any given Congress, um, they manage to um, pay for the government that they enjoy. And there are escape clauses for emergencies, but even emergency spending gets accounted for and then reduces overall spending in years when the economy is strong, which is sort of this Keynesian concept that uh, it, it might make sense for government to play an, a bigger role providing support for individuals who are temporarily out of work, say with additional unemployment, um, 
food aid, etc. But when the economy is strong, you don't want government crowding out. So you want to spend less during those periods. And so their debt breaks are cyclically adjusted. There's the Swiss debt break, the German debt break, and then Sweden has a similar debt rule. And they work really well. And we have uh, seen proposals in the U.S. Congress for adopting a Swiss-style debt break in the United States. Uh, one proposal in particular, um, the Responsible Budget Target Act, Budget Targets Act by uh, Representative Braun and uh, Representative Emmer and Senator Braun. Um, but there just hasn't been enough support for this, nor um, enough of a push by constituents about this issue. Even though uh, the Peterson Foundation did a recent poll that showed that 90% of American voters believe that Congress should work on a bipartisan basis to reduce the U.S. debt. Um, and yet we see very little um, movement in Congress to actually realize that goal. And uh, and I think the debt limit that we're facing this summer is one of those pivotal leverage points that Congress should use instead of focusing the debate on will we default on the debt or not, which I think is the wrong question. It should be under what conditions can we responsibly raise the debt limit? And that means that we are adopting policies that control for the growth in the debt and make sure that our current spending path is becomes sustainable because highly unsustainable as it is. So that's the conversation that we should be having. Uh, but of course, default or not um, is more headline catching. And of course, people associate uh, Democrats broadly with uh, big plans for spending, but we shouldn't let Republicans off the hook. Uh, you know, in his book, The Struggle to Limit Government, John Samples wrote about Ronald Reagan walking into his office, into his new cabinet uh, with a meeting with them. And very suddenly, all these people that he had selected are clamoring for money <laughs> to to do their uh, projects in their uh, particular agencies. And so, and even in Congress, when Republicans are in charge, uh, they regularly break the bank. You're absolutely right. Interestingly, um, if you compare deficit levels across Democratic and Republican presidents, on average, you get higher deficits under Republican control of the White House. And one of the reasons is that um, Republicans in Congress be become much more fiscally conservative when there's a Democrat in the White House than when there's a Republican in the White House. So in general, divided government works in the favor of liberty and uh, controlling the growth in government. Um, but it's especially effective when you have Republicans in Congress trying to put checks on a Democratic president. And that's the period in which we find ourselves now, which I think is why the debt limit is getting so much more attention this year because the House flipped and you do have some members that um, are serious about fiscal responsibility and then others that uh, tend to tag along because um, they want to go against the president's agenda. But we'll take it. You know, anything to make progress on uh, this this issue. Spending is growing out of control. And, you know, it's very different now than it was 10 years ago, because now we have debt levels that are so high at uh, close to the size of the entire U.S. economy that they are dragging down growth. They are reducing opportunities. They are reducing innovation. Uh, they make a real uh, have a real drag on income growth for American families. And it's one of those, it's this problem of what's seen and what's unseen, right? It's like 
we we don't see the economic opportunities that we miss miss out on the income that american families aren't earning because our debt levels are so high um but we know from over 800 years of financial history um reinhardt and rogoff wrote an excellent book uh reviewing uh, various debt episodes that such high levels drag down growth and there's also a great cato uh literature review that jack salmon uh produced about the high costs of of debt that I summarize in a in a blog post on the Cato blog. Um, so we should we should at least be able to agree to freeze that at the current level. Uh, but beyond that, we should reduce that as a percentage of GDP down to something closer to 60 or 70 percent, which is much more sustainable and uh, does less damage for the economy and preserves opportunity for the American people, which I think ultimately is what we what we care about. So people can live the lives that they want to live and not have opportunities, um, have faced barriers to opportunities because of uh, government spending that's too high. Of course, regulation is another problem. Romina Baccia directs budget and entitlement policy at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.